If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is going to form the, the basis of our, our, our time this morning. Um, but as you get there, grab John chapter 1, but then we're going to read Mark's list once again of, of these men, these disciples of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Mark lists, he says that, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So here once again we have this list of 12 men, 12 men that Jesus selected, Jesus called, he named apostles, men that he gave his authority, men that he sent out, men that we know 12 minus 1 would completely change the trajectory of the world. That through them, he would turn the world upside down. But as we begin, and we began to look at these men, we begin to see the, the failings of them, and we see what we can learn from them. From Peter, we see that he was brash, and he was bold, and he was courageous. But we see these qualities that existed in Peter, and we see them redeemed, and we see how Jesus would use Peter in the mightiest of ways. In Andrew, we see that he's obscure, but yet he's still significant. James was intense. He was impatient, but he, created a, he carried a great zeal in his following the Lord and his love for the Lord. We saw that John had a very much uh, an us versus them attitude. He was part of the sons of thunder along with his brother James. They would be the ones that would look to call down fire from heaven upon the Samaritans simply because they were different. But it is also John that we see he seemed to lack love for other people, but he did whenever he yielded himself to Jesus Christ. He becomes known as the apostle of love. In Philip, last week, we see the pessimist. We see that Philip had an awe problem. Philip didn't believe that Jesus could do. He sees the problem at hand. He sees what's there, and he's bound by his own understanding of it and doesn't see past that. And we learned last week that many of us can have an awe problem as we, we fail to see what the Lord can do, that He can do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. This morning, I'm deeply encouraged. I was actually encouraged this week as, as we came to see and we counted up the response of this body and what was given last week to far exceed that initial goal by 330-something percent if prior to that, if we despaired or we thought it was a goal too lofty, that would be an awe problem. But here we see the awesomeness of God among his people. But we've learned all of this through these men before Christ. For me, as, as, as I've been studying these weeks and, 
and, and preparing these teachings and thinking through what these men did, these characteristics that we can identify with, these are in, the, in these men before Christ. But then we get to see what happened to these men after Christ, what they began to do with that they learned from their master. Just this past week, my team, we were, we were having a meeting and we were just talking about the, this series and just the things we're learning in it and the current encouragements we're getting. And, and uh, one of us just shared how encouraged we are, but at the same time, not lamenting necessarily, but she's just pointing out, she said, I resonate, I identify with the worst in every one of these disciples. And I'm like, me too. And we can lament that or we can embrace that and allow that to bring about a change in our life. And I believe that is the purpose. Jesus didn't make a mistake in choosing these men. He was very purposeful. Mark tells us he went up on a mountain. He called to those. He prayed for those is what Luke says, is what Matthew says. He sought the Lord. He sought the Father on who these men would be. Then he called them. Out of all the disciples he had, he called these 12 men. He didn't make a mistake. He knew who he was calling, but he knew what he was going to do to them and through them. He knew that their identities lie somewhere else other than him, but he knew once they encountered him, he would change their identity to be something entirely different, and he would do immeasurably more with them than they could ever ask or imagine. So yes, we can identify with them. And that should give us encouragement as we read and we study and we look at their lives now. But if we're looking at their lives for their sake, we're going to miss it. We look at their lives as they point us to the one that brought about that change to begin with. They walked with Jesus and he changed their identity. But now church, our culture has an identity problem. Would we agree? Amen on that? We have a major identity problem in our culture. Identity has become a fungible commodity. It's a self-serving currency that we use to purchase a subjective sense of well-being, a subjective sense of meaning, but it can also circumstantially change on an emotional whim. The world has told these lies for long enough now and we've bought and sold this thing to where we can look at a screen, we can look at what someone else says about us and we can instantly have an emotional response to that and we can decide in that moment, I'm no longer going to identify with this. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to identify with that and I'm going to believe that this is now going to give me meaning where that did not. But the lie of the world is you're going to find it there. And there you have people time and time again, over and over and over. They're changing their identity, seeking to find to land somewhere that would give them contentment, that would give them peace and comfort and meaning. But we're searching for this meaning in this world. And this world is full of lies and deceit. And it's not meant to provide the thing that we need for that peace and comfort and contentment. But we have an identity problem. And too much of these things, peace, comfort, contentment, joy, value, worth, they're all tied up in these false identities. There's social identity, racial identity, ethnic identity, sexual identity, gender identity, family identity. We can find our identity in a sport. We can find our identity in our children. We can find our identity in our career. A myriad of things we can identify ourselves with. But as soon as contentment and peace and comfort begin to wane in that, we can move away from that and apply it somewhere else and think that it's going to fulfill us. 
And we see the destruction of it. We see the confusion that comes about. We see the turmoil. For the teenagers in the room, this is much more heavier on you than it's ever been in human history. I can tell you certainly, when I was a teenager, I struggled with identity. And thankfully, I, I mean, a plug on regeneration, that Lord used that to highlight that in me. But as I began to realize how I struggled there with identity in those younger years, it impacted and it formed the way I viewed the world and even my life for the next two decades. But we can forego that now. If we place our identity in the place that is secure, that doesn't change, an identity that is non-fungible, that remains true. You see, we can't identify with Jesus as we should or as we are called because we're too busy identifying with this world. But when you and I look to Jesus have an encounter with Jesus, when we yield ourselves to Jesus and we take on his identity, we will find lasting peace, lasting contentment, joy, and all the things that come with it that are only found in Jesus Christ. And the way in which you and I do that is we simply yield to it. It's the same way that we take on an identity that this world has for us, is we yield ourselves to it. Any one of these things that's listed, social, racial, ethnic, sexual, gender, family, all of these things come when we yield ourselves to what the world labels us as. But if we would yield ourselves to what Scripture would label us as, as Christ followers, we'll find all of these things. And it is only in Jesus Christ. So there's our message. We could end on that, but I've got about 35 to 40 more minutes worth of stuff to talk about. (laughs) Maybe not. See, we can't identify with Jesus apart from Jesus, but we can identify with his disciples despite all their faults. What we learn from them is they yielded themselves to him. And this brings us to our man for the week. The next in our list is Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew was a man that was falsely secured in his identity. And we'll see why here in the text as we go. But he was falsely secured in who he was. But in that security, believing he knew his identity and he was prideful and secure in that identity, what that pride and security did for him was it created a prejudice to everyone else that was not him. Everyone else that was outside of that identity that he had for himself, he would look with disdain, as we will see. But a few things about Bartholomew. Now, this is an Aramaic Aramaic surname. Bartholomew, it means son of Tolmai. In the Aramaic, the word bar means son of. So here, when it comes to identity, you have this man whose name in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also in Acts, he's named as Bartholomew, in which his name means son of Ptolemy. But what's missing in that? I think of Jesus. Whenever Jesus came to Peter and, and he asked this who asks his disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. And Jesus responds, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. 
Simon, son of John. But you see the distinction there for Peter. Peter's name was Simon, son of John. Here Bartholomew's name is simply son of Ptolemy. He's missing something. He's missing a first name. When we think of identity right here, as Scripture in the Synoptic Gospels gives an insight into who Bartholomew was, he's identified not with who he is, but he's identified with his family. He's identified with his father's name, with his ancestry. That's where Bartholomew's identity begins to lie, because he lacks that first name. There's no such and such, son of such and such. It's simply son of. But he's mentioned only about six times in six passages, passages of Scripture. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then in Acts, we see him as Bartholomew. But in John, we see the Hebrew name Nathaniel. Now, you may ask, could this be somebody different? You got Bartholomew, but then now you got Nathaniel mentioned. How could these be the same person? It's not likely that they're different, and here's why. As I said, Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. John in his gospel mentions Nathaniel, never mentions Bartholomew. But throughout the synoptics, you see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see Bartholomew is always associated with Peter, or I'm sorry, Philip. Philip and Bartholomew. And then in John's gospel, you see Philip and Nathaniel. And as we'll see as John lays out this interaction and what Philip did, and we read from last week that Philip went and told Nathaniel. But you see this association, and history lands on these are the same person. Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same individual. But in terms of identity, here's what's interesting about what John names him. John's writing his gospel in AD 85. He's the last to write New Testament canon. So many years are removed. And here you have John not referring to him as Bartholomew, simply son of Ptolemy. He refers to him as Nathaniel. Nathaniel is a Hebrew name that means gift of God. So you see the identity of this man in the synoptic gospels go from son of somebody to in John's gospel. John's naming of him as he gives more elaborate story of how he came to be a disciple. Disciple, John names him, gives him the name or shows his name to be gift of God. Now, how much more of a distinction is that between son of a father without a first name to now your first name is gift of God? I'm not saying John gave him that name, but he certainly refers to him as that. But what changed? Where's the difference between simply son of a guy to gift from God? We'll see. So in John chapter 1, verse 43, here's the call of Nathaniel. And from this point forward, we're going to refer to him as Nathaniel. Just for simplicity, I'm going to tongue-tie this up if I keep trying to say Bartholomew and Nathaniel back and forth, to be honest. So John chapter 1. Verse 43, it says, The next day, now Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. This we're picking up from last week. And he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And then following that, verse 45, Philip found then Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we see Matthew pairs these two individuals together, Philip and Nathaniel. It's likely that Philip and Nathaniel were friends. 
They knew one another. We see in Scripture in this account, the first place that Philip went whenever he followed Jesus was he went to Nathaniel. Wouldn't that be the first place that we would go? As we found Jesus, we would go to the person we know and we're closest to. But he goes and, and he gives this away in what he says to him. He says, hey, we have found him. Hey, Nathaniel, hey, buddy, we found him. We found not only him, we found him of whom Moses wrote and also the law and the prophets wrote. We found the guy. To me, it indicates that these two men, they studied the scriptures together. Philip knew what Nathaniel knew. Nathaniel knew what Philip knew. And Philip came and told him, we found him. Here he is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the son of Joseph. And it's turned, when we think identity, what did Philip give him? We found him whom Moses wrote about and also the prophets wrote about. We found him, Jesus of Nazareth. You see the identity. You see where he's connecting him. Son of Joseph. They knew the man Joseph. They knew his father. They knew where he was from. But Philip is identifying Jesus with the place he was from and his earthly father. And he's doing it to his friend Nathaniel, who he knows knows the law, knows Moses. And he's connecting all of these things for his friend as he tells him simply to come and see. But what is it in verse 46 that Nathaniel said to him? Philip comes, we found him. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now we've probably, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that in some way. Nathaniel's the guy that says it. So now you're Nathaniel. Your friend comes to you who you've studied the scriptures with, you grew up with likely, You've been in the word together. You understand these things together. You're looking to the same coming of the same Messiah because of the impression in which you live. And all of a sudden, this friend comes to you and he says, man, we found him. We found the one who Moses would talk about all the time, all the prophets. We found him. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And now you're Nathaniel. No way, for real. Show me. No, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, we may think that is a bit foolish in light of what your friend just told you. But see, when we have an identity problem, such as we'll find in Nathaniel, with that identity problem will come a prejudice problem. As you have this man, he hears this fantastic, wonderful news, and his response is to associate that not to the person, Jesus, but the place in which he came from. You see the disdain immediately that Nathaniel seems to have for the location, the place of Nazareth. He obviously saw Nazareth as a detestable place. He genuinely believed nothing good can come from there. But now how does he come to believe that unless he's grown up in a culture that would tell him that particular place is a dirty, unclean place and good stuff doesn't come out of it? Namely, the Messiah. No way. Now, we could say that's foolish. But Nathaniel was from Cana. We find that from John's gospel. Cana is about 10 miles north of Nazareth. Geographically, Nazareth is, is, is uh, kind of on the side of this trade route from, that would go from Egypt up through uh, Judea and Israel and into Asia Minor. But this trade route, this thoroughfare, so to speak, would go right by Nazareth. It was passed by. It didn't go through it. 
Might we relate to a thoroughfare of some sort or a route passing by a small community or a small town? And what happens, what can happen to that small community in that small town? But then here you have Nathaniel. He's 10 miles removed from the city of Nazareth, which is smaller than Cana, that gets more of all of that. And then there's this, this disdain. There's this view of that place. Can we relate? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe if you're in Will's Point right now, you recall a rivalry that once existed between two cities that were 15 miles apart. Maybe for those of us in this room in Edgewood, we can recall rivalry that exists even today in two communities that are four miles apart. I remember a time when I was in school, rivalry did exist between Wills Point and Canton, yes, but I remember a time when a rivalry existed between Wills Point and Edgewood. But I also know what that brought about in me. As a teenager, the way I viewed a Canton Eagle, disdain. If you're from Canton, I don't believe that now. I don't believe that now. But likewise, I mean, as, 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 as a Wills Point Tiger playing basketball, how I viewed an Edgewood Bulldog on a basketball court. May I concede something maybe right now? I'm not going to because of my pride. But I know how I view that. And I know the foolish things that we would do in that rivalry, in that dissension that exists between two places. And you find that in Nathaniel right here. Is he's labeling Jesus Christ, his Savior, as no good simply because of the place in which he comes from. Assuming that that place defines who he is. But we do that all the time. I could, I could, I was born and raised in Wills Point. I could have held that foolishness against a community and the Lord sending me here to pastor a campus. Praise the Lord for maturity and growth, but it still exists. If we define ourselves by location and by where we're from, we're going to view people with disdain and prejudice. And it happens all around us. Even today, even now. But imagine real quick. Imagine Wills Point and Edgewood still played each other. Imagine that was still a thing. And we're playing a basketball game and they're on opposing sides. Right now we have two campuses. There's a Wills Point campus and an Edgewood campus. We got kids in school. Imagine we still played each other. And all of a sudden we're in the gymnasium and Wills Point's on one side and Edgewood's on the other side. Are we for the same thing in that moment? No. No, we're not. But now as God's people, are we for the same thing in that moment? Are we always? See, God calls us to more. When our identity lies in the place of our origin or the place of our birth and we put that against someone else simply because we've got a rivalry or we play against them, yes, we are not always for the same things and that's okay. But as we'll see in Nathaniel, once he came to understand who he was with and he got to know who he was with, that completely changed who he was. 
I'm really getting ahead of myself right now, but that is fantastic truth to think through simply based on where we're from. So now here's Jesus' response. Here's what Jesus says to Nathaniel. As Nathaniel says this, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, we know the answer to that, most assuredly. But Jesus saw Nathaniel coming, because that's what Philip said. Philip ultimately said, hey, he said, hey, come and see. Hey, I know what you're thinking, Nathaniel. That's fine. Think it. Just come and see. As we talked last week. So he's coming. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And then he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So Nathanael's coming, and now Jesus places on him what? An identity. Jesus sees him coming, and he lays on him a label. But for Nathanael, as an Israelite, he's going to hear this and be like, Yep, that's me. Israelite, indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Jesus even gives insight into his character. There's no deceit. There's no guile. There's no craftiness. Nathaniel's not a backbiter. He's, he's not a circumventer. He doesn't go around trying to, to weasel his way into things. Nathaniel is a straightforward, blunt man. There's no subtlety about him. He is who he is. He is an Israelite, indeed. What's interesting is Jesus says this to him. In the New Testament, there's only two times the word Israelite is used. One right here, and then in Romans 11.1, 1, where Paul is identifying himself as he's giving the case for who he once was. He says, I myself am an Israelite. But what's interesting about the label or title or identity of an Israelite is there's a difference here between the Jewish people as an ethnicity and an Israelite as a nationality. At this point in time, when Jesus is, is meeting Nathaniel, Israel is not a nation. They're an oppressed people. They're a people that's under Roman rule. Roman, by its grace, allows them to continue to operate in this space. But they're, make no mistake, they're not a nation. They have no national identity. They have an ethnicity as Jewish people. But here Jesus says, an Israelite indeed. And I can see Nathaniel puff up. Yes, I am. Abraham's my father. Isaac's my father. Jacob's my father. I'm from the nation of Israel. I'm God's chosen people. I don't know what's happening right now under that. We're oppressed. We're not the nation in which we are. But I'm an Israelite, by golly. In whom there is no deceit, Jesus says. But it's interesting Jesus says this. Here's why I believe that's interesting. This takes us back to Genesis. And in Genesis, we read the story of Jacob. Throughout the, the latter chapters there, Jacob is the son of Isaac, who's the son of promise, the son to Abraham. But Jacob's name means supplanter or usurper. And Jacob lived up to that name. He was deceptive. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He deceived his, his uncle many times over. The man Jacob was a deceiver. He was a crafty, conniving man. That was his identity. That was his name. Names had meaning. They were given purposefully. And here you have Jacob, one of the fathers of this nation, is a supplanter. He's a deceiver. 
But in Genesis 32, verse 27 and 28, Jacob has an encounter with God. And this is what is said. And he, the one, the angel, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He's wrestling. He's having this encounter with this angel. He's understood to be God. And he asked him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. I'm Jacob. That's who I am. I'm Isaac's son, son of Abraham. I'm Jacob. And the angel responds, no. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You see, this man Jacob has an encounter, a very personal encounter with God. And God completely changes his identity. You are no longer Jacob. You're no longer supplanter. You're no longer usurper. You're no longer deceitful and a deceiver. You are now called Israel, which means wrestles with God. You're Israel because you've striven with God and with man, and then you prevailed. And then from this man, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, comes the Israelite nation, the people of God. And we see then throughout the years, throughout the millennia, that this people certainly still strive against God, and they still strive with men. They did it there as they're oppressed by Roman rule. They're striving with God in their judgment, but they're striving with man in their oppression. And then you fast forward to even today. Would you say that the nation of Israel is still striving with God and most certainly striving with men? Do you see the identity? But it's not that they fell into it. It's identity given by the Lord for His purpose. Not to make this message about Israel, but God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. And we're actively seeing that continue to play out. And we will ultimately see that too. In the end to come. But that is a teaching for another day. But when it comes to identity, you have Jesus approaching this man. An Israelite indeed. You bet I am. Nathaniel would make no qualms about it. But with that came a level of prejudice. Even in, 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 in Israel's heyday, in the good days, King David days, there's the nation of Israel, there's everybody else. There was a us and them mentality. Nation of Israel, the rest of the world, the Gentiles. It existed even in Jesus' day. As we see that, we see that in, in James and John wanting to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans because they were not Jews, because they were different. They were hated. The differences kept them at a place where they would view them with disdain enough to say, let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them. But now Nathanael responds back to Jesus here as Jesus says this, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, do you know me? Now, I don't know the inflection necessarily that he said that. I can read into some things here, maybe. I don't think he was overly disrespectful to say, do you know me? You think you know me? But nonetheless, his response to him was, hold up, time out. Yes, I'm an Israelite, indeed. No guile, no deceit. I like it. But do you know me? And Jesus says, yes. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Now, some may say that Jesus uses this story, calls him this Israelite indeed, alluding to Genesis and alluding to Jacob because that was what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. He was reading the story of Jacob. We don't know that or not to be true. But nonetheless, what we do know is Jesus reveals himself to Nathaniel here in a way in which he has not done so yet. He reveals himself to Nathaniel to say, I saw you. I was there with you. Jesus reveals his omniscience. He is all-knowing. He's omnipresent. I'm everywhere. I'm seeing you. There's no place you can hide from me, Nathaniel. I saw you under that fig tree. Whatever you were doing, no one else knows you were doing it, good or bad. I saw it. And that was enough for Nathaniel. What he once said and once thought, what good can come from Nazareth, began to wane in him as he hears these words from Jesus. And it says in verse 49 that Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi. He's not just some guy from Nazareth anymore. He's Rabbi, teacher, is what he calls him. And he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. He doesn't, no longer the son of David, Joseph. You're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What a declaration. What a title change, a thought change. Simply because he encountered Jesus, Jesus made him believe something about himself that he could not believe otherwise. And then his whole heart changed. His response to him changed. Is that he saw Jesus for who he was. But then Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe Really, Nathaniel, that's it? And he says, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is an allusion to Jacob's ladder. Where Jacob lays down, lays his head on a rock, has a dream, and he sees this ladder to heaven and angels ascending and descending, and Jesus takes him right there to it. This was your identity in Israelite indeed, but it's about to not be. If you would just follow me. And if we would do that, we, we would see, we would find, as Jesus tells him, the simplest things that we can come to believe. He says, greater things you're going to see. You're going to see much greater things than these things. What I just told you that's blowing your mind right now, just wait. That is what we find. When I think of giving last week that far outweighed our goal, man, that can blow our mind. That is fantastic. But it is my belief as a church body, greater things than these we will see. But if we relegate that to just one Sunday, Super Sunday giving Sunday is just one Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday because it was a catchy time. And that becomes the extent of our generosity because it was a cool thing to do and everybody get together. That is fantastic. That is great. But if it stops there, we're not going to see greater things. Nathaniel did not start, stop here. He started here. This was this man's beginning point as he would follow after Jesus and we would see Jesus begin to radically rewire who he was and who his identity was. So over the past few weeks, we've seen Andrew. He came to Jesus because of the preaching of John the Baptist. Then Peter came to Jesus because of the witness of his brother Andrew. James and John were called directly by Jesus, as was Philip. But then we see Nathaniel came to Jesus through Philip, going and telling him. But as he came, and you see this progression, you see this man in his personal prejudice, through a personal encounter with Jesus, 
remove. And his identity changed. It changed for all of them. And the world would take note of that as well. In Acts chapter 24, verse 5, this is decades from this point, from the call of Nathaniel and the disciples, literally decades later, the apostle Paul is gone through his ministry journeys, writing the letters to the church and planting churches as he did. And then, and then he, he's before the governor Felix and he gets up there and then this, this prosecutor is, Tertullus is speaking against him. And this is what he says of Paul to Felix, the governor. Read this for you in Acts 24, verse 5. He says, for we have found this man a plague. Speaking of Paul, the apostle Paul, this, is, this man is a plague. He says, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Does that fall on you if you think through that? Do you have Nathaniel say, what good can come from Nazareth? Guilty by association here. Now we have the Apostle Paul who's the ringleader. That is foolish of them. But he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. See, the world is throwing that back against God's people, against Christians, against Paul, against those that would follow him. But now their identity rests with Jesus and where he came from. The place where he came from didn't change. The world's view of that place didn't change. But what did it change? They now identify with Jesus. They are identified with Jesus, where he's from. And now you see Paul, he's identified that. He's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. If that's what a Nazarene is and that's where they're from, come on with it. You can call me that all day long. Because it's not about the place, it's about the person in which we follow. And Paul in Galatians 2.20, he gives the definitional statement of his identity. He says, it is, it, is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, the life I live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God. I live for Jesus Christ who died for me, who loved me, who died for me, gave himself up for me. Paul, as I once was, was gone, is gone. What is here now, I'm alive in Christ because of what he's done. And it's the taking on of that identity and the ministry that would follow that the world would take note and then I even identify you with the place in which your Savior came. But for you and I, what do we do with that? As we think through our own prejudices and the own little idiosyncrasies that we have, those own little pockets of pride and, and where we're from and who we are and the way we might label ourselves and, and a lot of that label the way we would label others and view others. What does it say for us and how we should view others and do? We should be loving. We should let go. Those prejudices that we may have as those wane as we follow after Christ was replaced as a love for our fellow man. You can't hate someone that you love. Those two things are in conflict. They're not going to happen. They're not going to exist in the same place. So we should be loving. The way we change people outside these walls is the way we love people outside these walls in spite of themselves. 
But Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 through 48. He, he says these words. He, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, it's easy. You, you love those who love you. That's, that's an easy reciprocal thing to do. For the most part, sometimes that is difficult, depending on the relationship. But nonetheless, he says, what reward do you have if you love those who love you? But then he says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collector, the gen, I mean, the, the, the worst of the worst the over, over here, the sinner, they love people that love them. What good are you doing if you love people that love you? He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. See, he's drawing a distinction into their national identity, who they are as Israelites. There's Israelites and everyone else. There's sinners and tax collectors. There's Gentiles and there's God's people. But if you're only going to God's people, what is it doing for you? If you're only loving yourselves, it's, what is it doing for you? What reward do you have? He says in verse 48, he says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you here is emphatic. He mentions Tax collectors, sinners, he mentions Gentiles, but he says you must be perfect. And as we look at that word perfect, let's not, let's not define it as we define perfection because you and I cannot attain perfection. Jesus Christ was the only one that is perfect. As he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's not a perfection that's attainable for you and I, but it's not in this sense a moral perfection that we are to attain. In the Greek, it's telios. And it indicates a completeness or a wholeness. You and I are meant to be complete. We're to be brought to perfection. And Paul says that he's convinced that, that he who has created a work in you will not bring it to a completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What that day is, I'm not exactly sure, but it's a day that is far beyond. I don't believe that when my body dies, when this gives out and I'm to be present with the Lord, I don't believe that I'm perfected at that point. I don't believe that I'm made complete at that point. There's a day beyond that point that Jesus will make me complete. But nonetheless, that's the demand that we are to be that. But how do we become that? We don't apart from identifying with Jesus Christ. And the identifying marker, what brings that about in us in context here is the way that we love other people. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. The question becomes, church, who do you consider to be your neighbor? That's everyone else to answer it for you. So the way in which we love is directly tied to how we're being made complete and made holy. But this is a work that he does in you as you yield yourself to him. See, church, we, it's not that we're freed up from all responsibility, but we're freed up from doing a thing that we have an inability to do. But as we yield ourselves to, the, to him, he brings about the completeness of this work. That is the process of sanctification, as we partner with him. But if we stand back over here and we look over here at this community or that community and we believe simply because they're different, we view them with disdain and we're not looking to get close to them and we're not loving them. You can't love someone from a distance. That's a lie. 
I've heard that a lot lately. I just, I'm just, you know, I love you from a distance. That's bull. It's not love. What if Jesus Christ loved you from a distance? There would be no salvation. Because rest assured, from the fall on, God the Father loved you. But he loved you enough to send his son. His son loved you enough to go to the cross. His son loved you enough to leave men behind to teach us what he can't in his absence. We have these men and we have his spirit. We have one another. We have his word. We have everything we need to be made complete. But if we're not seeking to love as he loved, we're holding on to something back here that's going to hinder us moving forward. And if it's an identity, it can be changed. So what do we do? Number one, a few things as we wrap up. One is proximity is the key to overcoming prejudice. Getting close to other people, getting near to other people that you don't understand. But it's not always comfortable. When you get in someone else's space and you seek to understand them, their response is irrelevant. Jesus sought to get in people's space. And he did it not to make them comfortable. He did it to save them, to seek after them. But their response didn't determine his moving forward. So we should be seeking to get near to people. And the more we get near to people, the more we seek to understand people, those prejudices will, will wane. They will go away as you get to know one another and understand one another. Again, that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. But if we understand where we're at, we can stand in disagreement, but still in unity and in fellowship with one another. That exists everywhere. It exists within this body. But if you never get to know someone, it's going to be much easier to be their critic until you seek to understand. So number one is proximity is the key to overcoming our prejudice. And number two, proximity helps you find common ground. For mankind, our common ground is that we're all sinners. We're all created in the image of God, yes. We all, because of that, have worth and we have value. God is for mankind. He's for all men. Therefore, with that understanding, you and I, with the understanding that secondly, we are all sinners, we have that in common, we should be for one another because we know what we found in Jesus as it pertains to our sin. Everyone has a desire to be loved and valued and many people never experience it because of the prejudice that others have against them and keep them over there. Some people never come out of hiding because they see the world hating them there. So what do we do? We need to go there and seek to love them in that place. They need a Savior who restores. Broken people exist and they need a Savior. But in all of our differences, we gather under the banner of Jesus Christ. We come here for Jesus Christ so that we can be sent out by Jesus Christ there to introduce people to Jesus Christ. The focal point of all this is Jesus Christ. It's not you. It's not me. It's not our worship. It's not our building. It's not what we do. It is Jesus Christ and how we share that. But we are a diverse group of people. We have different races. We have different ethnicities and nationalities within our body here. We have blue-collar people. We have white-collar people. We have different educations. We have different incomes. We have different political views. From time to time, 
We have differences that exist. There's diversity that exists in here, but that diversity is not our strength. That's something that the world says. Diversity is not our strength. Our strength comes from our common identity in Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ where we find the strength that we need to do the things that he's called us to do. Our diversity becomes a tool because I'm not going to be able to be in the places that some of you can simply because of the differences that exist within us. That's the purpose of the diversity. But it's not a means of finding strength. It's a means of finding unity, finding our giftings, and putting those to work for God's kingdom outside of these walls. But the world creates division, but the church should be creating unity. And one day that unity will be fully realized. In Revelation chapter 7, this is what John says as he sees this in 7, verse 9 and 10. I'm going to read this for you. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. There's going to come a point in time where there's going to be a great multitude that you cannot number. Billions and billions of people from every nation, every tribe, every peoples, every language, and every one of them, and all of their differences do not matter because they're all clothed in the same thing. They've all got the same thing in their hands, and they're all saying the same, with their, saying the same thing with their mouth. That is a wonderful testimony of what is to come. But if we believe that's just something that's reserved for eternity, we're missing out because that is something we can experience here. We've all been washed white by the blood of the Lamb. We all have the same word in our hand, the same spirit in our heart to go and do and speak with our mouth the truth that he's given us. If we put our identity on him. Jesus took 12 different men and radically reframed their worldview and sent them out and they radically reframed the world. And lastly, number three, we, we have this us versus them mentality and this us versus them mentality has got to go. Yes, there are two types of people ultimately in this world. There's the believer and the unbeliever. But if it's an us versus them, we'll never introduce them to Jesus. But if that mentality goes, then we'll love them and see them the way Christ did. And we'll seek them out. The only us versus them should be good versus evil. And that is where our battle lies. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and through 12. The Apostle Paul said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our problem is not a people problem. Our problem is the schemes of the devil. And he does it very well. But he does not do it good enough to press down Jesus Christ. Again, it is through him that we can do all these things. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. 
Jesus said that to Peter. He says, "You blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He says, from now on, you're called Peter. And you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that language indicate? Does it indicate that hell is on the offensive? If the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, who's on the offensive? The church. But if we come and we sit and we soak and we don't do anything, we will find ourselves on the defense. And right now, culturally, we've lost. It seems like it, does it not? Because there's an identity problem. But church, if we would grab hold of our identity and we would go on the offensive with God's word, the sword of the spirit in our hand, every other piece of armor is defensive, but we have the sword of the spirit to be on the offense, to speak light and life in dark places. You know the dark places, you walk in them. Do you not? Every one of us, we walk in dark places every single day. Be the light in it. But you're not going to be the light in it if your identity is in something else this world tells you versus what God's Word says you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Be the light in dark places. In places that we're not God's word would encourage us to search our heart, to seek out why. If I, if I have a prejudice against someone, if I'm blind to that, I want someone to point it out in me. But if I want somebody to point out these areas where I may have a prejudice or I'm keeping someone at a distance or I'm not seeking to love someone well or I'm thinking somebody else can go do that, I will love you at a distance. If that's in my heart anywhere, I need to ask somebody. But if I'm going to ask anybody, why don't I ask God? Psalm 139 Verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Church, I encourage every one of us, as we leave today, as we get home, we get quiet tonight before bed, pray that prayer. And I assure you, if your heart's desire is that the Lord would reveal in you these areas, He will. And in many cases, it will be immensely difficult revelation for you. But it is so life-giving. I pray that often, and every time I do, what I usually find It's from the time I start asking God that question, I'll go about two weeks where I will be an idiot. I will be short with people. I will be grievous everywhere on top of grievous. Usually takes me two weeks, honestly, when I pray that prayer for the Lord to open my eyes to these things. But then he puts me in a position to where I will seek out someone and say, hey, will you forgive me for the way I've been acting the things that I've said, the things that I've done. And in every instance, it wasn't just over those two weeks that I did it. It's the ongoing process that we walk in when we walk with Jesus Christ. And church, the world will take note of it. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. and I thank you, Lord, that that I am who you say that I am. 
that I'm no longer who I thought I was. I'm no longer who I believed others defined me as or who others wanted me to be or who I thought I should be in order to get others to accept me. What foolishness I found in those things, but it came as a result as I yielded myself to you. That you would reveal those pockets of my heart and those pockets of my mind and and renew those places, Lord, to your glory, to your identity, Lord, and that you would send me out from that place. I pray that, Lord, for every individual in this room. For anyone that hears this message, for those that 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 are joining us in Will's Point this morning, that they would resonate with that, Lord, that they would seek after you, that they would take time in a quiet place to ask you to search them but to yield themselves to you in that searching, Lord. And to allow you to bring about a work that you desire in our hearts to do the things that you've called us to do. I thank you for a new identity, Lord, but I pray that I look more like you today than what I did yesterday. And I know that you will bring that to bear if I would come alongside you. I pray that for all of us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.